Hey, listeners, it's Molly. And it's Jim. It's been just a little while since you heard from us, hasn't it? The world has uh, sort of changed a little bit, Molly. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, we happen to be in the middle of a pandemic that just keeps getting worse by the day, it seems like. And feels like our catch-up banter should be a little different than it was last time, right, Jim? I mean, like, instead of, you know, how's your summer vacation, I feel like I want to know, are you a mask wearer? Uh, everywhere. And let me ask you, are you, because I know you're a foodie, Molly, are you going to restaurants in San Francisco or or are you staying Um, home? I don't even know. I mean, I haven't eaten out at any restaurants. I've done some takeout, but San Francisco's totally transformed right now. I mean, so much is shut down. Downtown is totally deserted. I haven't taken public transit in six months, which for someone who doesn't own a car is kind of a big deal. So I've been thinking a lot about how not just San Francisco, but all of our cities are changing right now. And that's why we wanted to bring back the podcast. And this time, we're making a miniseries about how COVID will permanently change our cities. We're going to explore whether technology will help solve the new challenges our cities are facing or just make them worse. And we're going to start with an important part of urban life that we're all missing right now, going out to restaurants. After this break, we'll talk with E. Chen from Toast, a tech startup that's powering restaurants across the country. He'll tell us what he thinks the restaurants of the post-pandemic world will look like. Welcome back to Technopolis, the COVID edition. Technology is still disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. And I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. Today, we're talking about the future of restaurants because no segment of our economy was hit harder or faster than our restaurants. Molly, let me run you through some pretty devastating statistics. Mm-hmm. About 8 million people in the U.S. right work in restaurants, of which a disproportionate number are Black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. Two out of three of them lost their jobs after COVID. Wow. Four out of 10 restaurants have also closed. Already? And experts are predicting that three quarters of those restaurants will never open their doors again. Wow. I mean, it's unimaginable how many people have already lost their livelihoods and are going to lose their livelihoods. But then if you zoom out and think, what does that mean for the neighborhoods where these people live and the neighborhoods where these restaurants are located? Our neighborhood commercial corridors are just going to be devastated. What I mean, what is the restaurant industry and what are our neighborhoods going to look like five years from now when all of these businesses and people are out of jobs. And that's why I'm really interested to talk to Chen from Toast on this episode. Toast is a tech company that's been powering a lot of the restaurants behind the scenes, including, for example, to like accept online ticket orders that don't come through Uber Eats, Postmates, and all those other delivery apps. Yeah, they were one of these high-flying tech companies, a $5 billion company in February. And then just like that, come March, their business plummeted alongside all the restaurants, and they ended up having to lay off half their staff in April. Yeah, and I got to expect they've been thinking a lot about the future of restaurants post-COVID because they want to build the tech that powers it. 
outside of work, how are you doing? What have you been doing during the pandemic to stay sane? Um, gardening. So I've been into just getting some fresh vegetables uh, for, our, for our meals. So speaking of, I have an important question for you. Are you a good cook? You grew up in the restaurant industry. Did any of that pass on to you? So yes, my parents are restaurant owners. When we immigrated from China uh, in the early 90s, that was our American dream was to have that own business and, and uh, build, a, build a life here in the U.S. Um, I actually did not learn how to cook in the restaurant because my, my uh, language skills were being used for other purposes. Like, oh, you were front of house. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was uh, entering phones, you know, serving tables. Uh, when I got my car at 16, I was so excited. Didn't realize I was going to become the delivery driver as soon as I got the car. So, tell us about this restaurant, though. Where where is it? And uh, you know, is it still there? What does it serve? Give us give us a, What's it a called? background. Yeah, all that. Yeah, so so uh, it's called Shanghai Restaurant. It is in uh, downtown Bristol, which is in the in the southern part of the U.S. So it's uh, on the border of Virginia and Tennessee. So there's literally a street. Mm. Yeah, that splits the the two two towns, uh, Bristol, Virginia, and Bristol, Tennessee. So there's you know two two city councils two two high schools um, and everything. I think the only thing they share is a, is a public library, um, but otherwise it's a, two different states. And my parents' restaurant is right in the smack of downtown. So you cross the street from the restaurant, you're in the Tennessee side and you pay different taxes and different rules. Wow. You cross back and you're on the Virginia side. Amazing. Yeah, it's also known for um, country music and NASCAR. So it's got one of the l- largest NASCAR racetracks and it's the birthplace of country music. It was actually a great place to grow up. Um, we had a, a lot of community support. Multiple generations of customers have been coming, and we've we dove right in. The kids, we all you know joined the marching bands. I joined the wrestling team, so we kind of just you probably had lots of wrestling team meals, celebrations at their family. Exactly, restaurant. exactly. So you grew up in the restaurant biz. Was it your dream to end up you know helping start a restaurant tech company? No, complete opposite. My parents said, you know, we're working you hard now so that you never, ever have to work in this industry so that you mm-hmm. can do other things, right? So, you know, their the whole goal was never to for the kids to actually um, be back in this uh, business industry. So I uh, went to college, studied engineering, uh, spent a bunch of years at GE working on self-driving trains, automa- automated train systems for really? uh, freight trains. Self-driving trains. Uh, yeah. So I uh, spent a lot of time in Canada with Canadian National Railway and, and automating their freight trains up there. I uh, came to Boston for uh, business school and uh, stumbled upon Toast, a stealth startup with uh, you know three to four people that were trying to build something from the restaurant industry. Uh, you know, All the founders were you know, MIT technical product uh, minds. Um, and uh, I came in with some restaurant background and uh, we never thought we would be here today, you know, seven, eight years later with, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar valued company with uh, tens of thousands of restaurants and uh, being a leader in the uh, restaurant tech space in the United States. And what did your parents say when you told them, hey guys, I've got a new job at a restaurant tech company? <laughs> um. They they were they were a little bit unsure in terms of like you know be joining a startup, but they were they were supportive, um, and I begged them to be a beta customer. So they uh-huh. were cus- perfect. Were, <laughs> that was the next were, question. <laughs> yeah. So they were customer number seven, uh, which okay. was a blessing and a curse. Um, the blessing was they gave me feedback all the very time, quickly, yes. all the time. 
the criticism was also that they were constantly giving me feedback and telling me how bad this product was uh, <laughs> when, we, when we first started with all the bugs and everything. So, so yeah. Are they, wait, wait, wait. Are they still clients though? Like, that's the test, right? That's the test. Yes, yeah, so they are still clients today. Okay. They, lo they, love, okay. they love the product today. They couldn't live without it. It's changed their lives and uh, they're super excited for the product and they tell everyone about it when they walk through the the restaurant they asked them about the product so how are they doing right now during the pandemic did they have to close up shop are they still operating right now what's going on i think they might have shut down for a, a few days maybe a week or so but then they um they quickly reopened with just takeout and delivery uh, which they were doing before right but it was just all takeout and delivery mm -hmm. so today they're doing okay they're they're definitely they're probably at 60% of what they typically do in a at this time uh, mm -hmm. in, in you know in previous years uh, one saving grace that they they have is that they it did end up buying their uh, restaurant building. Uh, oh yeah, you know, so they're so the real ten years the ago. real estate owners. That's a very different situation right. to be in. Do Virginia and Tennessee have the same pandemic rules right now? Like <laughs> ha, like are there are some customers no, coming I, in with I masks and yeah. others yeah. not? <laughs> Yeah, so a couple of months ago, this is exactly what happened is uh, the Virginia governor shut everything down and Tennessee uh, decided to reopen. So everything was open, the bars, the, the burger joints. And you basically had one side of the street that was like, like you know, dead, right? There was, there was no traffic, there's no restaurants open. Across the street, there's, you know, so you know live music. Everyone's there's, out. You know, That's bananas. Yeah. There's bluegrass. <laughs> what a, that, what an music. image. Yeah. Yeah. People are, you know, playing pool. And, and so oh it was it was gosh. a very interesting. Right, right interesting there, a, micro, a microcosm of our, of our, you know, quote unquote, national response to COVID. Yeah. Jeez. Fascinating. <laughs> but let, let's start maybe diving into, you know, March. I mean, you were the fifth person at Toast in February. Toast was, I think, estimated to be a $5 billion valued company. It was, you know, heralded as another tech unicorn. And then COVID hits. Take us to sort of that time and how you guys responded and, the, and, and how you interface with your customers, the restaurant owners at that time. So I remember uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, we closed a, a round of funding right? That put us uh, at that valuation that you had um, talked about. And literally 30 days later, I remember March 14th, you know, everything went, went downhill, right? So basically overnight, you know, uh, sales for restaurants drop something like 85 to 90%, right? So you used to make $100 a day, you were down to like $10 a day, right? Um, and that With was a snap because of a finger, just like that, right? Right, and you you saw this. You start seeing it happening a little bit earlier with in Chinatown in terms of the the traffic dying down and people not going to these big, you know, dining restaurants like you know dim sum places, etc. So literally overnight, our our industry changed, right, and the the, the whole dining service was was gone, and um, we quickly had to pivot and think about how do we actually help restaurants survive. And what did they need the most in that beginning phase? What had to change most? quickly from a technology yeah. perspective to give those yeah. folks a, a chance to survive. So I think, I think two things. The first thing is for all the customers that, that were just one model, which is people come in, eat at a table, they pay, they leave, right? That whole dining service for those customers, they needed within days to launch uh, a takeout delivery pickup platform. So that was number one. So like what a we did website where people could order a website food. online ordering website exactly that people could order. E, I think we really need to talk about delivery because okay. that has been 
one of the things, as you mentioned, that has kept a lot of the restaurants alive during the shutdowns. But it's very controversial, right? Like, yeah, uh, it, was, it was also bleeding some of the restaurants before. Yeah, right? they, yeah, restaurants can barely afford. It's kind of like a drug that they can't get off of because the delivery fees are so high, but they're addicted to the delivery income. And cities around the country, you know, at the beginning of the shutdown started passing laws that limit the delivery fees that companies like Grubhub and Postmate can charge? Yeah, definitely. The The cost of delivery, as you know, is quite high, right? It could range between, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the, the check size, right? So most restaurant profit margins are actually in the single digits, right? If you're doing, you know, uh, the, in the teens, you're actually doing pretty well as a restaurant. Is anyone, any restaurants, like, really breaking the mold and experimenting on this? I mean, I feel like I've heard the chef, uh, David Chang, talk about, like, he wants the U.S. Postal Service to do restaurant food delivery instead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that would look like. But, like, have you seen any interesting different approaches? I've seen customers in the Northeast that actually are, are you know, partnering with other restaurants in their neighborhood to say, what if we had our own driver that we share? Could we actually drive that cost down, right, instead of using huh. a third party? Now that gets complicated because of insurance and you know who's actually paying the payroll and how does that actually work. But we see some restaurants actually trying it. And where, where where are you seeing that? Is there like a particular restaurant, like I don't know, in Boston that you know is working on that? Um, I think it's in. Uh, I think it's in Portland, Maine. I have to check. Uh, it was an oh. email a while back, but it was in the it was in the Maine, New Hampshire area in terms of uh, uh, four or five restaurants banding together to to create this. Um, this kind it of feels co-op. like a very New Hampshire yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Live free oh, it's a little, yeah. a little restaurant delivery co-op, basically. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. This episode is brought to you by the Aspen Center for Urban Innovation. The center works with cities to connect innovation with inclusion, whether through government or industry. The goal is to make cities places of connection, opportunity, and delight for all residents. The center tackles tough questions like why failure in local government is taboo, who makes the tech that is shaping our cities, and what it will really take to achieve shared prosperity. Follow them on Twitter at Aspen Urban Innov. That's Aspen Urban I-N-N-O-V. Five years from now, when the disease is gone, how important do you think takeout and delivery is going to be to the restaurant industry? More important than it was pre-pandemic? Less important? Like, are people going to revert back to not wanting to do takeout anymore? Um, here's my, my my way of thinking about it. If you look at off-premise dining, that was already kind of growing. Off-premise dining being like takeout or... Takeout delivery, yeah. right, exactly. Um, I do think that the the mix of the, the, the coming in and dining in versus takeout and delivery... Uh, we'll we'll balance a little bit more. I don't see a world where there is, you know, ninety percent takeout and delivery and ten percent dining service, right? I think the restaurant concept, the community, the experience is very powerful, right? When you think about celebrations, when you think about anniversaries, when you think about experiences. Yeah, people want to come together. People want to be in person. They don't want exactly. to have everything be distanced and at home. What are the new restaurants going to look like that start in five years? I think that the the new restaurants of the future are going to look a little bit different. When Toast first started seven years ago, right, we started by building this app for check splitting, right, where people didn't have to pull out credit cards, cash, right, and just make it really easy for that experience. And it didn't, it didn't work. It was too early for its time. There were multiple companies that started to do this, and that didn't work, right? And today, 
we see that technology, you know, being way more important. We see the contactless ordering, uh, contactless payments. Contactless payment. What does that look like? Is that like when I go to the airport and there's an iPad on the table and it's the menu and the waiter and my check and I don't interact with a human? So that, that's one, one way to think about it. But we think the future is actually um, bring your own device. It's actually the device in your hand. Oh, you so there isn't even an iPad on the table. It's there's no iPad, iPhone. right. You just pull out your phone. You're, you, you, you get access to a digital menu. So there's no, you don't need to uh, pull out a paper menu. You don't need to look at a big digital menu board. You know, the, the pictures, the, the descriptions, all of that is accessible in your hands, right? So another, another place in life where the, our phones are going to be sort of omnipresent again, right? There's, we can't escape it. Now in the restaurants, instead of just texting our friends, we're going to be ordering everything on, the, on, our, on our iPhones or whatever. Exactly. You can order from your phone. You don't have to wait for a, a, a waitress or server to give you uh, another round of drinks. You can just, you know, hey, I want another round of drinks, right? And just well, hit, how are hit the drinks going to get to the table? So, so there will still be a server that will bring you, unless unless we see a bunch of robots, you know, roaming around the restaurants. But oh god, uh, don't ta- get me started. Autonomous, on robots. yeah, yeah, Bali loves this. Autonomous, <laughs> uh, autonomous servers of, of beer. I, I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Come on, I mean, go on, Molly. I mean, Tyson, you're never going to sell me. <laughs> but but uh, we don't we don't th- we don't think the hospitality element uh, is going to be easily replaced by you know machines. Oh, in other words, I, humans have characteristics that are you know useful. Exactly. For this kind of exactly. a setting. Oh, that's yeah. nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. It sounds to me like you believe in restaurants as an important kind of place for celebration, for community building. In the urban planning world, we talk about restaurants as kind of third places where people gather and they kind of create community hubs and culture in neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Like, What happens to that if restaurants are all going contactless? I think it's it's still going to be there, right? There's still people making the food. The other piece is the the digital experience actually allows restaurants to understand their guests more and, and actually collect data and, and see the data of their guests, right? But and, like, look, I teach about this in my class, yeah. right? Mayor mayors all want to have all this data on their residents so they can better yeah. understand what residents want. But like, no mayor understood their residents better than your former mayor, Mayor Menino in Boston, who served for like 30 years and supposedly had shook hands with half of the city of Boston. Like, does a app really know what customers want better than a server does? So an app is a appendage to, to the experience. So yes, you, you have- appendage, okay. Yeah. So my parents have owned this restaurant for 25 years, right? They know everyone that walks through the door. They know the, the fire chief, they know the, the, the baseball coach, yeah. they, know, they know the coal miner and their families, they know the, the, the math teacher, right? And that's all in their, in their brains because they've been there for so long, right? Yeah. But as soon as they leave the restaurant, whoever they've hired, the server, the, the bartender, that, that data goes out the door, right? It doesn't stay with them. Right, there's no, institutional, mad- there's no the institutional memory kind of leaves with them. That's right, that's right. And I think, can you think about uh, data as a uh, a helper, right? To help people remember special events or or names or history of of the guests. That's that's obviously not scary or not not um, creepy, but that is a friendly, warm, welcoming hospitality. So that requires training and understanding. But I think when you see a world, look in the, in the future, there will be probably fewer restaurants. To be honest, I think there will be restaurants. restaurants. There will be restaurants Wait. that will probably not survive. Well, so many have already gone out of business. We know so many have gone out of business. I think that, that this is and inevitable. The, and 
they won't be replaced by new restaurants? Did we have too many restaurants to begin with? Some of them will, right? Some of them will, some may not. I, I, I think there's going to be some time period before that, that happens, right? And I think there will be competition. And I think for differentiation for restaurants, I strongly believe that restaurants will have to adapt. They'll have to adapt. They'll have to adopt uh, new ways of doing things, new ways of making money, new revenue streams. Such as and what? New- this is actually, let's go, let's, let's dive into this. Like, like what's going to change? Like, what's, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what's the new, what are the new business models, the new kinds of restaurants that we're going to see that we haven't even seen yet? Yeah, so so let me start with some of the things I'm already seeing, right? There's a restaurant uh, down the street from my house um, that are doing specialty groceries. Um, they are selling. What's, it what's you know, the What's the restaurant? Just curious. Uh, it's it's called Lobster Walk. It's a it's a you know Asian restaurant down the street, and they are selling frozen steam buns. They're selling mm. you know they're, they're <laughs> we selling. We both ummed at the same time. I'd yeah. buy that. <laughs> they're, they're selling you know fruits. They're selling you know Asian fruits. They're selling. Uh, bags of rice. They're selling 50 pounds of bags of rice because there's demand for it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're all doing this through a WeChat chat group. And there's only 500 people in there because it's how, that's how big a WeChat group is allowed to have. So I was that's like, cool. I got added in as like 450 or something, but I don't, I don't, I can't actually read Mandarin. So actually I haven't ordered because like it was too hard to use Google Translate to figure out like. Yeah, I was going to say not many Americans use WeChat. You've got to have exactly. a connection to China to be savvy enough about exactly. how WeChat but, is used. Yeah. But they figure out, they figure out a community of people that have demand for their product for them to survive. Right. Because, because the, oh, yeah. the, rest, the restaurant is, is not being able to sustain it. You have restaurants like um, Live Alive in Cambridge that are um, building meal plants. Right. So it's an organic vegan vegetarian option and it's like a hundred dollars for three four meals and it is it is flying off the shelf you have joanne chain in boston who's a uh, who owns a bunch of flower bakeries doing... oh i love flower bakery oh my god they're the best right and their bottle is changing right joanne chain is doing uh you buy a baking kit you can bake with joanne chain over a, a call right over a conference call do you think they're going to continue to offer that post pandemic and then they're going to need I don't know, like a Zoom account or some special company. Toast is going to create a video product for baking classes for all the bakeries around the world. Like, is that something they're going to? Is that something they're going to keep doing, or do you think once they can go back to their regular business, they're going to give up on all those other business channels? I think some things will stay. I think that if if Plot Bakery is able to generate revenue. Uh, and Joanne Chen is able to attract a large audience, which she can, right? She's given lectures at, you know, Harvard University on the she's science of sugar. She's a celebrity su- baker. Exactly. She's given lectures on science of sugar, and it's always sold out, and it's always overbooked, right? Is that like an elite thing? Or can like the neighborhood restaurant down the street do that? You know, when I think about the Lobster Walk uh, example, where there's, um, you know, just with 500 people in a WeChat group can sustain their the revenue, right? There, there could be, in small communities, enough demand for some of these things to drive for. Now, are, are they going to be millionaires? I mean, restaurants well, have never they're been... They're still in the restaurant business, right? Right. I yeah. mean, like, the restaurants yeah. have never been a way to, like, make lots of money, right? Most people don't open restaurants thinking they're going to be... Rich. Super rich, right? But it's more about how do I make enough money to build a good business that I can hire people, that I can pay people, that I can, you know, delight my community around me. The community thing is super strong. You know, recently we had, you know, a Chinese New Year celebration at, at our family restaurant and my mom had an injury. She had fell from a ladder and she couldn't, you know, we talked about, should we still have the celebration? She, she was in the hospital. She's like, no, yes, we should have it. And uh, we got slammed. We got slammed. There was a ton of people um, and we just got overwhelmed. 
our customers started cleaning tables for us. Oh my wow. God, that's and, the awesome. sweetest thing. That's great. And, and, bus, and busing tables and like, and sweeping, and because they just saw that we were just overwhelmed. They knew that we were short staff because like, you know, there's some people like, you know, watch my mom at the hospital, right? And and they just stepped in, right? And I think that's just an oh. example of just the power community and why people are going to support restaurants and why there's a, such a strong you know, exactly. sense of community there. Yeah. This is exactly why we need restaurants. And I will just say, instead of replacing servers with robots, I love this idea of having the customers. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I guess that's kind of the new business model, right? Fast Casual's entire business model. Exactly. Clean your own is... plate, clean your own table. Yeah, yeah, Get, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the labor issue, actually, maybe a little bit more directly. I mean, when you think about a couple of years from now, uh, I mean, obviously right now this has been devastating for the industry and for so many people who rely on server-type jobs, uh, kitchen jobs, et cetera. Uh, three, four, or five years from now, um, again, going to the business model question, too, like, are we just going to see fewer servers? Are there going to be less people working in the restaurants that we're frequenting? It's, it's hard to see the future, but I think that's going to be the case, right? Um, about 10% of the U.S. population today work in restaurants. So that's about 15, wow, that's a lot. 15 16 million people, maybe, maybe a little less, right? Um, and uh, that's 10% of the workforce, not 10% of the total U.S. Right, population. Right. Yeah. And restaurant, restaurants represent about 5% of GDP. So, so last year, you, you probably saw probably something like $800 billion Maybe a little more, maybe close to a trillion dollars. You know, it's hard to exactly predict, uh, uh, estimate, it, but it's a mismatch, it's, it's, right? So, so you have ten percent of the workforce generating about five percent of GDP, right? So you can kind of sense like, wow, like this is a low-paying, hard-earning industry, right? Um, and you still have a lot of uh, undocumented workers working in restaurants, right? Uh, yeah. the, those are the people that couldn't get PPP, that couldn't get unemployment. So when when restaurants needed staffing. You know, sometimes they were the first to step up to, to go into the kitchen to work, right? Uh, and they're, they're also probably the more vulnerable population when we think about people impacted by COVID and the type of people that um, have to go back to work that can't do work remotely. Sure, right? lower income, maybe, maybe disproportionately people of color as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so I think in the new business model, in the new world, uh, I think restaurants may get a little more expensive to actually support the models that works. And we so we're, probably all gonna, have to, we're all going to pay more. We're all going to pay a little more f- to go get our... Right. I mean, right. and that's going to go toward worker salaries. Hopefully, well, some of it go towards worker salary, but I think restaurants will have to be more efficient as well. They probably won't be able to sustain with the same type of um, staffing models. Often, we often don't talk about the back of the house where it's a, it's tough for kitchen staff as well in terms of the cooks, the chefs, the uh, dishwashers, right? In addition to the front of the house, the servers, and, and, the- and those folks, I would expect much much harder to reduce that part of the workforce because. You got to make the food. You got to clean the dishes. Yep. Um, and you just don't you don't see those folks as much, right? I mean, like you said, they're kind of behind the scenes. Right. Right. And the back of the house and the front of the house demographically tend to be different, right? The front of the house tends to be more white, and the back of the house tends to be staffed by more people of color. So, like, how do you think the changes in the labor in the future are going to affect kind of the demographics of who gets these? hopefully better paying jobs. To be honest, I don't know if it would change a lot because I do think that the front of the house usually needs very good language skills, right? Um, people yeah. who speak English fluently, um, who are um, trained to interact with guests in a certain way, right? Um, if you go to a nice restaurant, right, who, who, who knows about wines or, you know, who can recommend yeah. things upsell, right? Um, whereas uh, people in the kitchen, it's, it's 
it's um, you're making the food, you're cooking the food, the interactions, the language skills uh, are just different in terms of requirements. So I, I don't know if that will that will change your time. But uh, either case, like both front house, back house are, are workers who, who, who are um, on a lower paid socioeconomic status. So going back to this idea of what kind of restaurants aren't going to survive this pandemic and five years from now they won't be around anymore? What do they have in common? And particularly, I'm really worried about restaurants that haven't been able to access the um, PPP, the federal stimulus money, and particularly restaurants owned by people of color and specifically black owned restaurants uh, seem like they're suffering the most right now. Like how, how are they going to get through this? And how do we make sure they're supported right now? Yeah, so there's a lot of different factors here. We probably don't have time to talk about all of them. But one thing that I, I would highly recommend uh, for restaurants is really uh, think deeply about how you adapt. So I think one number one is flexibility, adaptability, and adoption of whatever technology you need to, to get to the next stage. Whether that's marketing, whether that's social media, whether that's um, a better inventory system, whether that's a more lower cost delivery model, right? And I think you're right, right? People of color, um, minority-owned businesses, small businesses don't have the same things as McDonald's and Chipotle and Burger King, right? Yeah, they don't have an army of consultants to help them adapt. Obviously a big challenge um, to so many communities right now. Let's go back to Bristol, Virginia, slash Tennessee. Uh <laughs> And to Shanghai Chinese restaurant, um, how are, is your folks' restaurant going to be different in three to five years? Yeah, so I'll answer that in two ways, right? Uh, number one, um, you know, we, we grew up in this restaurant. We love this restaurant. We love this community. You know, we, we have country music festivals, bands that play on stage at a Chinese restaurant every year, right? So with, it's definitely part of that, that community. Um, it's hard to say whether will still be operating this in a few years, right? My parents are in their 60s, right? Uh, all the kids are, are you know, doing other things, right? Um, I'm in tech, my brother's in tech, my, my sister's a physician. So none of us are really probably going to inherit that business or go back to it, likely. So there's a, there's a question, right? One of the biggest declines in the U.S. are the, the immigrant restaurants, right? Where the next generation yeah. is moving on to do something else. And there's no one there to... To, to inherit that business, right, and to keep mm-hmm. it going. So there's a there's a good question on will there be a reduction of specifically, you know, Asian and other immigrant minority restaurants, uh, and it, whether is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? It, are, are people kind of leaving that industry? So that's one big question that's maybe for another time. So yeah, I kind of can't imagine, a, a, you know, a world without Chinese, you know, owned restaurants. But oh, you know what? Like, I'm of Greek heritage, and the Greek restaurants still there, and there's still Greek diners, so I, I may be a little hopeful about this. <laughs> right, right. And, and and there's always going to be maybe, you know, new set of immigrants that come and, and kind of start their American dream like we, like we did 25, 30 years ago. I mean, right? the restaurant is such a great foothold it's for the a lot of immigrants in this country. Exactly, exactly. So so it's, it's a definitely a powerful force. But let's assume that, um, that we will uh, keep it open for the next three to five years. I think a lot of things will change. I, I think we will shrink our dining room. Mm. I think we will maybe cut it in half, right? Because one of wow. the things, one of the things that we used to do is we used to offer a buffet for a few days of the week, and you know, in the South, buffets are very popular. No more buffets. I don't <laughs> think anyone wants a buffet anymore. Right. Well, you'd be surprised. We still get a ton of people walking in asking for the buffet. So, <laughs> so, um, 
there's still demand for it, but we, we decided not to do that for staff safety and for customer safety and all of that. So that, that opens up the space, right? So I think it's going to be a smaller footprint, multifaceted business. I've talked to my parents, you know, I've seen a lot of different models. Like I'm like, Hey, have you guys start thinking about selling frozen groceries items? People might be able to take back and steam or heat up, right? Can you actually make your products and freeze it? Could you actually sell frozen picking ducks that people can take home? So you know, I think there, there's going to be discussions emerging. My parents are in a pretty interesting spot where they have kids that are in this industry. My brother's in tech, right? And we're constantly talking about, you know, how they could change their business models and, and new ideas. <laughs> and my brother runs their social media, Facebook thing on the side, right? It's a family, a family endeavor. I love it. So yeah, the, the community restaurant's going to stay. It's going to look a bit different. It's going to have to innovate, rely on technology, change its business model, but you don't sound too negative about the future. It's just going to be, it's going to be a little bit different, but it, it, it's not going to necessarily be so bad. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I'm pretty optimistic. I think, I think as we talked about earlier, you know, growing up in the restaurant industry, like this is not going to go away. There's just no way you're going to be able to make these things at home, experience these experiences, celebrate um, with your family and friends for special events, uh, company gatherings. I, I think all of that human, you know, human nature, I'm definitely uh, pretty bullish about about the industry, and I don't think the world's going to be dominated by McDonald's and Burger King and Chipotle. So let's hope not. That's good to hear. Well, plenty of food for thought. Pun <laughs> very much intended. Wow, that was great, Molly. <laughs> I've been waiting on that one. Thank you so much, E. It's been a pleasure to talk with yeah, you. Real pleasure to meet you, E. Thanks so much. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. It was a ton of fun. Thank you for, uh, for hosting me. We've been talking a lot about the future, but I'm worried about the fact that winter is coming. Like, like the season winter. Like the season. Like it might be summer, but winter is coming and outdoor seating just doesn't work in the winter and takeout isn't going to be enough. Yeah. The takeout business, as we discussed, isn't keeping these restaurants afloat. And not all restaurants are going to be able to pivot their business to being multi-channel businesses, particularly restaurants owned by people of color, particularly Black-owned restaurants don't have the access to resources to make pivots like that. Yeah, and let's not forget the impact on like cities. City revenue is largely often tied to meals taxes. I talked to our mayor in Alexandria. In April, their meals tax revenue was down 75%. Yeah, and not just from a tax perspective, but think about all the ground floor retail. I mean, we had a retail apocalypse before the pandemic. I think we need to start thinking about what other uses can take up ground floor space to help enliven our neighborhoods, right? We can't just rely on the restaurants and the coffee shops and the bookstores. We need to expand our horizons, right? Daycare centers, offices, maybe even housing. One of the things I'm worried about is if E's prediction of all of these tech-first restaurants comes to me. I don't want those spaces in our commercial corridors, right? I want the human-centered restaurants, the ones that still employ servers. And I don't want to be sitting on, you know, my phone again, right? Sitting in the restaurant. I mean, we don't want to be sitting with our friends and we're going to want to engage with the server and, and have that be that community, right, restaurant experience that we love. I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly why I think right now, what we all need to be doing is do everything we can to keep these restaurants in business and enlivening our neighborhood communities. Or influencing our local policymakers to help or bail out some of these small businesses if they can. We certainly have our work cut out for us, but I think that's all the time we have for today. 
Join us next time for a look at how the pandemic is going to affect the people who go to work in other people's homes. This is Technopolis, and our coronavirus series is produced by Pizza Shark and Postscript Audio. I'm Molly Turner. And I'm Jim Capsis. You can follow us on Twitter at technopolis underscore pod. And remember to wash your hands and please wear your mask. <laughs>